To my mind, one of the most compelling doctrines of the Christian faith is the doctrine of man. If you look around at the world and listen to the messages in the media and in the culture, there seem to be two things going on. One, we seem to have incredibly high expectations of what people can be and what they should be. And at the same time, we are bombarded regularly with the reality of how low men and women can go, what base things they can do. Now, how do we explain those two things? How do we put together this impulse that we have in us that tells us we ought to be this, when in reality, many of us are something else entirely. The way we ought to live and know we ought to live and the way we actually live are often two very different things. Sometimes even those who are uh, proclaiming those high expectations and advocate for those high expectations turn out to have fallen very far short of those expectations. How do we make sense of that? I believe that the account Scripture gives provides the most satisfying explanation for why those two things exist together. Now, of course, I believe that because I believe the Bible is true. I believe it's inspired by God. Uh, And so I believe that what it says is, is true and right and accurate and trustworthy. But I think even if you don't start from that assumption, even if you don't already believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that it's inspired, that it's true, I think if you will consider what Scripture says about the nature of man and think about it honestly and give it a chance, I think that you will find that it gives at least as good an account as any other that people have come up with of how come people have these high expectations of what men can be and yet they often fall so far short of those expectations. And I believe it's the best explanation because I believe it's revealed by God, right? And not a guess made by man. But even if you don't believe that, I encourage you just to consider for these minutes that we have together, whether or not what the Bible says about why mankind is the way that it is makes sense, right? Um, and, And here's what it says if we boil it down. If we boil down the Bible's teaching about the nature of man, what it says is this, that mankind was made in the image and likeness of God and was charged with being um, benevolent and just uh, rulers, vice rulers of the world that God had made. He set Adam and, up, Adam and Eve up basically as a king and queen to rule over the world, right? And to do so justly and benevolently. But instead of doing what God designed them to do, they rebelled against God. They became corrupt and enslaved to the power of sin. And I'm arguing that our high expectations of what we should be come from the fact that even if we don't acknowledge it, there's something in us that knows we were made in the image and likeness of God. We are called to something higher than the beasts. Right? We are called to be something more, something greater, something more significant. We're called to, to be like God, to image God in His character and in His actions. But we don't. 
And the reason why is because ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin, the whole human race has been uh, in bondage, in slavery to sin, and there's only one way to escape that slavery, and that is through Christ. So the reason why we so often and so far fall short of what we know we ought to be, what we know we ought to do, is because of that original failure of Adam and Eve and the effect that it has had on the whole human race. So uh, this morning we're going to focus on that second part, right? That we, what are the effects of Adam and Eve's sin? What is the nature of man now outside of Christ? And our text this morning is in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 18. So I invite you to turn there with me in your Bible if you haven't already. We've been making our way through the book of Romans for some time now. And um, we have seen in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that Paul's aim is to convince everybody, Jews and Gentiles, that apart from Christ, they are hopelessly lost, they are sinners in rebellion against God, and that no privilege or advantage the Jews might have had exempts them from that. Right? But everybody, Jews and Gentiles, are subject to the judgment of God. They are all sinners, and he wants them all to know that so that they will all flee to Christ and trust in Christ for salvation because that's the only way to be forgiven of your sin, to be righteous in God's sight, and to be welcomed into God's kingdom. But until you know that there's no other hope, there's a hundred other things you might be trusting in. And Paul's trying to remove all those other Trusts all those other arguments that we make about being decent people, being good neighbors, not being that bad, all the, all those kinds of things. Or, you know, well, I come from this kind of family or I grew up in this kind of church. Paul's saying none of that matters ultimately if you don't trust Christ. That's what he wants us to know. So here's how he says that. Pick it up in verse 9 and read to verse 18. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul's charge here at the beginning of this text is this, that all people are under sin. Not just the Gentiles, but also the Jews, all kinds of people in all places at all times, we are all under sin. The Jews are not better off, he says, despite their advantages. Right? At, at the, earlier in chapter 3, he said, you know, the Jews do have some advantages. To start with, they were given the scriptures. They were given the law and the promises. But those advantages have not done them much good. Right? And certainly will not avail them at the day of judgment if they don't believe the promises, believe in the Messiah the Scriptures talked about. And the reason why is because the Jews, just like the Gentiles, are under 
sin. Right? They are under the power of sin. Now, notice that he doesn't simply say, all have sinned. Right? We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, have sinned. That's true. Right? He's going to say that later in chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that's not what he says here. He says, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Meaning, sin is a power that can rule over you. That can dominate you. Right? Jesus talked about this as well in John eight thirty four. Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. It's not something we just choose. It's something that rules over us. Later in Romans chapter 6, Paul says to Christians, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him, with Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Meaning, before you were a Christian, you were enslaved to sin. Before you were united to Christ by faith and joined with Him in His death and resurrection, you were enslaved to sin. But because Jesus died and rose and you've been united to Him by faith, His death and resurrection count for you, and now your old self is dead, and you've been given new life, and you're no longer a slave to sin. But even still, for Christians, he has to say in Romans 6.12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. So even once we have new life in Christ, sin is still seeking to dominate us, seeking to rule over us. It is not a master that gives up its slaves easily. And those who are not in Christ are still under sin's thumb. It rules, it dominates their lives. This is the reason why both Christians and non-Christians regularly fail to live up to the expectations we have for ourselves and others. Because sin is a hostile power that enslaves unbelievers and seeks to dominate believers. We are not a neutral party with a bad angel and a good angel on each shoulder. If you're not in Christ... You are a slave of sin. And if you are in Christ, you're in a war still against sin. You have to battle to win. Now, when Paul says this, he is summarizing the argument he's been making since verse 18 of chapter 1. Right? That's why he says, we have already charged this. Right? I've already been making this argument. And so now he's bringing this long argument to its grand conclusion. And he does that by quoting a litany of scriptures from the Old Testament. He says in verse 10, As it is written. In other words, this is not just Paul's observation about human nature. This is not just something he's sort of come to a conclusion about himself. He is saying that what he is arguing, what he is charging here in these early chapters of Scripture, or of Romans, is the claim, the testimony of all of Scripture. This is what the whole Bible says about the nature of man in sin outside of Christ. So we can't chalk this up to Paul's pessimism about human nature or some misguided thinking on Paul's part. That's not where this is coming from. Sometimes people want to say, oh, well, that's just Paul. That's just Paul. Well, 
Paul is an apostle of Christ, speaking with the authority of Christ, and he is bringing to bear the witness of the entire Old Testament to affirm that what he is saying is not just his opinion. This is what God says. This is God's judgment, God's testimony against man in sin. So what does he say? Well, verses 10 to 12 is a quotation from Psalm chapter 4, or excuse me, Psalm 14 that we read earlier in the service. And the repetition in these first three verses, verse 10 and verse 11 and verse 12, ought to leave no doubt about what Scripture says about our sinful condition. Notice this. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. No exceptions. No exceptions to the rule. Outside of Jesus Christ himself, who is God in the flesh. Outside of Jesus Christ himself, there is no exception to this testimony about the sinfulness of humanity. There is not a righteous person on the planet. Right? Many points to um, Ecclesiastes 7.20 in a combination with these verses. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that's certainly not, certainly not you. You're not the exception. I'm not the exception. I know that all too well. There's not a righteous man on the, pl- on the planet who does good and never sins. Paul says, no one is righteous before God. No one understands what God wants us to understand and know and do. No one seeks for God. Everyone has turned aside. Altogether, a lot of us have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You think that's accurate? You think that's true? Whether or not you think that's accurate and true is is going to depend in part on um, your perspective. What What are you thinking about? What are you looking at? Because some people will say, I know... I know some people who aren't Christians who are good people. They're good neighbors. They're good co-workers. They're good friends. They give to charity. They, They do nice things for people. They're not scoundrels. I don't expect to find them on the news one night. You know, they're they're decent folks. How can Paul say no one does good? I've seen people do good that aren't Christians. What does he mean by this? Well, Paul has made clear from the beginning of this book that our perspective when it comes to sin should not begin with how we treat one another, but how we respond to God. If our perspective is fundamentally horizontal, then we might think, yes, some people are good and some people are bad. But if our perspective is vertical, we realize that all people are sinners. All people are rebels and traitors and treasonous. All people are in rebellion against God outside of Christ, right? Uh, Here's how one pastor put it. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Man's actions, every one of them, is polluted at the source. Sin is in control. 
All our actions are self-centered. There is no such thing as a disinterested action in the natural sinful man. What then is goodness? So he says, no one does good. Well, what is goodness? What then is goodness, he asks. Well, goodness really means to do things for the glory of God. And your naturally good man does not do things for the glory of God. He does not think of God. He is doing it entirely for his own glory and satisfaction. That is why it is useless. The test of doing good is this element of God's glory. So let me ask you a question. Think of something you did today or in the last few days that you felt like was a pretty good thing that you did. You know, you emptied the dishwasher or you mowed the lawn or you did something for your neighbor or, or whatever. Now, if we were able to know and hear and experience all of your thoughts, all of your emotions before, during, and after that good deed that you did. Would we still think it was good? Would we hear you grumbling, complaining about the fact that you have to do this? Is you smiling while you do it, you know, because you don't want them to know that you, but you're grumbling internally that you have to do this, right? Or you're thinking, I hope somebody sees me do this. I hope somebody knows I'm doing this. I hope somebody appreciates that I'm doing this. Right? Or, if nothing else, after you're done, if you had a good attitude through the whole thing, then you're like, yeah, more people ought to be like me. Right? More husbands ought to be like me. More wives ought to be like me. Yeah. Even as Christians, our best deeds are tainted by sin. That's what Paul means when he says, no one does good. No one is able to do anything that if you were to take that deed in its whole context, in its entirety, with all your thoughts, emotions, everything, and present it before God, no deed that we do would be able to stand that test. No deed would God be able to say, perfect. It's exactly what I wanted you to do. Everyone falls short of that standard. No one does what is good. No one even seeks God. No one seeks to be near to God and know God unless God himself seeks them and draws them. Nobody on their own wants to please God, wants to glorify God, wants to know God. God is the one who has to draw us. That's why our salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. Because if it was left up to us, We couldn't even get the process started. We wouldn't want to get the process started. Our hearts are so crooked and twisted because of sin that there's not a one of us who even starts to do the right thing from first to last. It's not in us. Right? You cannot and I cannot appreciate the full glory of the grace of God in salvation until you realize that you wouldn't have even wanted it unless he started working in you. The only reason you ever came to faith in Christ is because he sought you first. The Bible says um, we love him because he first loved us. He didn't love us because we started loving him. That never would have happened. He loved us first. He made the first move. He sought us out. He sent His Son even while we were yet sinners to die on the cross for us. So Paul is very blunt about how bad off 
we are in our sin apart from Christ because He wants us to know how desperately we need Christ. Or if you're a Christian already, how desperately you needed Christ. He goes on to talk not just... So he gives sort of the opening salvo, right? No one, no one, no one, no one, no one is righteous before God or does good or seeks God. And then he gets more specific in verse 13 and 14 and says that our speech is corrupt. Right? Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or serpents is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now, you might not have chosen that exact language to express it, but don't we all know this is true? That even your closest friends, even your most beloved people in your life sometimes say things that sting and wound and hurt. And those are the people that like you. We all know the things that we think and say from time to time about people we don't like, that we're glad they don't hear. James says that the tongue of man is set on fire by hell itself. Our words are often some of the most harmful things that come from us. And, and we recognize that's true of us oftentimes even as Christians. Things we say that we wish we hadn't said, things we, you know, that slip out or in a moment of anger that we, you know. But if you... You know, if you dare, remember back to before you were a Christian, how you talked and the kind of things you would say about people. Paul says part of the evidence of how broken, how corrupt we are is just the things that we say. The way we, exp- we curse people. We wound people with our words. Right? Our, our, our expressions oftentimes are poisonous. We lie to people. We bring death rather than life with our tongues. And it's not just our mouths, it's our hands and our feet as well. Right? Verse 15 and 16 and 17, he says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Right? The things we do, the places we go, our actions are corrupted as well. We bring ruin and misery, sometimes not even meaning to. We hurt people, we wound people, we bring destruction. We all um, probably have witnessed people that they just seem to, everywhere they go and everything they touch, they just seem to bring destruction, right? That's true of all of us at some level. Right? None of us go through this life without hurting people, offending people, messing up relationships, messing up things that we try sometimes. Even sometimes we're trying to help, right? We have good intentions and we, we wreck stuff. But oftentimes our intentions are not good. Even if you're not a murderer, remember what Jesus said about sinful anger in the heart. Murdering your brother in your heart. Aquinas draws these two things together, the corruption of our speech and the corruption of our feet and our hands, and he says, the sins of the heart can be gathered from these. In other words, we know where these things come from. Paul doesn't have to say our hearts are corrupt because we know if our hands are corrupt and our feet are corrupt and our mouths are corrupt, we know where all that corruption is coming from. It's coming out of the heart. This is what Jesus said in Mark 7. From within, out of the heart of man, 
come evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. So sin is not merely a sickness that occasionally affects some part of us. It is a power that touches every part of us. And that doesn't mean that we're all as wicked as we could be, thankfully. And it doesn't mean that sin is something that's forced on us from the outside. It means that no part of no person has escaped the dominion of sin outside of Christ. The concluding remark Paul makes there in verse 18 is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So if you don't even fear God, you're not even on the path yet of wisdom. You've not even begun to know what is wise and good and righteous and true. After all that bad news, we need some good news, don't we? And we're almost there. I just can't wait for the rest of Romans chapter 3 because it's about to explode in chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 with a full exposition of the glory of the death and resurrection of Jesus and forgiveness and righteousness and pardon. And it's going to be so good. But let me give you a little bit here now because we need some right now. After Jesus said that the one who practices sin is a slave to sin, he also said this, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The way to be free, there is a way to be free. You don't have to be a slave to sin. You don't have to be stuck in Romans 3, 9 to 18. It doesn't have to define you. Sin does not have to dominate you. You don't have to be ruled by those sinful passions and desires anymore. There's a way to be free, and the way to be free is in Christ. Only in Christ can we not only be forgiven for the sins we have committed, but also be set free from the power of sin that's been enslaving us. That's what Romans 6 was about that we were quoting earlier. Because Jesus died to sin and rose again, and we've been united to Him by faith, that's what we symbolize in our baptism, we have died with Him. And guess what? When you died with Him who died to sin, you died to sin too. And we have been raised with Him spiritually, right? given new life in Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin. Now, now we're slaves to righteousness. Romans says. Now we're slaves to God. Our old self is dead and we're a new creation. Only in Christ can those things happen. And only in Christ can we be made new. And then by His grace and by the power of His Spirit, we can begin to live as those who are made in the image and likeness of God. To live as God designed us to live. As God wants us to live. So we have to reckon with both aspects of the human condition. We know what we ought to be. And we know what we are. And the only way all of that can be reconciled is at the cross. It's through the one perfect man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who was not under the power of sin, who was righteous, 
who did seek his father, who never turned aside, who never deceived or reviled, who is God himself, who not only knew the way of peace, but who brought peace and achieved peace and purchased peace through his death on the cross. If you will trust in him, if you will turn from sin to him, if you will call out to him and say, I am lost, I am undone, I am stuck, I am a slave, I want to be what you've made me to be. Will you forgive me? Will you cleanse me? Will you make me new? He will never turn you away. And He will restore you. And He will cleanse you. And He will forgive you. And He will send His Spirit to take up residence in you. And then by the Spirit and by the grace of God, which is also a power, The grace of God is something at work in Christians. By the power of the Spirit and by the power of God's grace, you will be able to resist temptations to sin, to resist sin's attempt to dominate you, to rule over you. You will instead be able to present yourself to God as a servant of righteousness rather than to sin as a servant of unrighteousness. But it's only possible in Christ. It only happens in Christ, who is the perfect image of God, the only truly good man. And in Him, we are made right with God. And in Him, through Him, because of Him, we will one day be all that we were made to be when we see Him face to face. That will be glory, won't it, Brother Doc? That will be glory.